Okay, let's stand and read. John chapter 14, verse 1 to 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there also you may be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, not, we do not know where you're going or how, you, or, or how do we know the way. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Father, these are profound words, and they were important words in the timing of the disciples' lives. They're important words for us too, and may, through your Spirit's power, we understand them clearly. As you know, I've been sorting through a lot of stuff this week in terms of what to say, what not to say. I pray now that your Spirit would speak strong in revealing what to put in and what to take out, and in the way to say it, so it's communicated in an easy and understandable way. We're not here to impress people with fancy language or fancy understanding. It's what's the point if we can't walk out of here and grab your truth for what it is. This is simple teaching in many ways, but it's hard sometimes for us to comprehend. So pray now for our service that you would be guiding us through the entire time. Amen. Well, as you can tell by our reading this morning, we're not finishing the letter of 1 Timothy today. The reason we're not is I thought it was important for us to continue in the conversation that began last week after my sermon in the dialogue. If you weren't here, uh, the conversation centered around the hope of heaven and our eternal perspective. What really were we to look forward to when we get to glory? And how is that to influence our lives here and now? We also spoke about our relationship with Christ, both in this life and the next. And the phrase I used that sparked some of the conversation was the now but not yet reality of the believer's life. Now we have certain promises, certain things, but then we will have different promises and different things. What were the shared, uh, shared promises? What were the things that were completely different? And it led to a quite an uh, interesting dialogue in our church. So I thought before we finish Timothy, we should talk about this yet one more time. And I know it may postpone the letter a little bit, but I want to deal with things as they come up in the church. So we have clarity. And uh, my prayer for you today is that this will provide clarity today and be a word of encouragement to you, uh, like a, a lighthearted message in terms of its, uh, if it's, its joy that it can bring in the hope. So we'll dive in by looking at verse 1. In verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus at this point is talking to the disciples. And he says to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. In order to understand why he tells them this at this point, we have to understand the context. In John chapter 12, Jesus and the disciples had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now you know that in Jerusalem, the Passover is a huge time of celebration. It's a time when they remembered their freedom from Egypt and how God delivered them from the hands of slavery and from the power of Pharaoh and brought them into the wilderness and eventually to Canaan. So the Passover is an incredible event in their history. Huge time of celebration. 
So Jesus comes in on the first day of Passover and the crowds line the streets and they're waving palm branches and they're declaring him to be king of Israel and they believe this. So for the disciples, they're, they're really pumped about this because they were his right-hand men. They had a lot to gain by Jesus being the king. And, and they were really excited about the hope that he was going to bring because for the Jews now, with accepting him as king, they believed that he was going to free them from Roman tyranny and from under Roman rule and establish the kingdom and they would be reigning with him. The problem had been this though. Since the first day of Passover, after that triumphant entry into the city, Jesus had dropped one emotional bomb on them after another, dashing all the hopes of this becoming a reality. On the night of the Passover meal, which is this celebration, he, he, he tells them that he was going to leave them. And where he was going, they could not come. To make matters worse, a couple days earlier, he actually said that he was more than just leaving in the way they probably would have thought about it. He said he was going to die. That's the way he was going to leave. He also announced in the night of the Passover meal there's going to be trouble within the camp of the disciples. Judas was going to betray Jesus. Peter was going to deny Jesus. His, his main guy. Not once, but three times. So these were troubling times for the disciples. I mean, they'd given up everything for the, over the last three years to follow him. And now their entire future and their beliefs are in jeopardy. But most of all, they're afraid of no longer being present with the Lord. They were going to lose him. So you can see now why with all these emotional bombs that happened just in a few days, the disciples were troubled. They were filled with anxiety and fear. So Jesus knew their emotional state. He understood their state. And so he wanted to bring them words of comfort and reassurance that his leaving them was necessary. And they didn't have to worry because it was merely temporary and his leaving was going to be ultimately for their benefit. And so we pick up the benefits in verses 2 through 6. What the promises were of the future. So the first promise Jesus gave them was the hope of a future home in heaven. The first promise in the middle of troubling times is to promise them an eternal home in heaven. You pick this up in verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. This reference, of course, to uh, the Father's house where there's many dwellings was a euphemism for heaven. It's one of many titles given in the scripture for heaven. Um, here he uses the word house, but other places he refers to heaven as being a country, a kingdom, a place of paradise, or a place of rest. But notice here the aspect of heaven that Jesus really keys in on. He says in verse 2, my, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Many dwelling places. Jesus' point to the disciples was this, there's no shortage of space or room for those who have placed trust in me. There's ample room in heaven for all those who have believed. So as a follower of Christ, there was hope. They didn't have to arrive in glory with no vacancy signs <laughs> lit up on the, on the, on the gates. There, were, there was guaranteed lodging for every person who had put their trust in him. 
words of comfort in troubling times. Now, I'd like to do something at this juncture point, because we got into discussion about this in last week's sermon. In the, sorry, in the dialogue. I realize Jesus just keys in on one aspect of heaven, many dwelling places. But I want to give you a picture of what heaven's going to be look like in terms of the gifts and promises God's going to give us, in terms of the external things we get to experience, to show you how awesome heaven is really going to be. It's really incredible what God has in store for us, and it's beyond our comprehension in many ways. So the two key passages are going to be 1 Peter chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22. 1 Peter gives us the big picture, like the sort of overall arching characteristics of heaven. And Revelation 21 and 22 gives us the finer details, kind of like some of the nitty-gritties of what heaven's going to be like. So this is going to be cool to look through. First of all, what does he say in 1 Peter? Here's what he says heaven's going to be like. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The context of Peter's importance. We did First and Second Peter as a church. If you don't um, haven't heard those sermon series, they're all online on our website. That church was was being persecuted for their faith. Peter's church, like that he was writing to, was going through troubles. Right in the opening chapter, what does he do? The same thing as Jesus. He reminds them of the eternal hope as a way of carrying them through the troubles, just like Jesus is doing here with the disciples. And he says, listen guys, I know life is tough here now, but heaven's amazing. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The very opposite of what you're experiencing now. The word imperishable means to not to be subject to decay, free from destruction or catastrophe. Undefiled means to be unpolluted, unstained by sin. Unfading, to never wither, never grow dim or lose its beauty. That's a far cry from what we're experiencing now. Romans 8 describes our world now as opposite to imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, both in creation and the human body. Look at what, the, what we experience now as believers, according to Romans chapter 8. He says, here's a now but not yet reality. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Look at the earth and what we get now. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's the reality of creation. That's why I had to do a stucco repair this week in my house, or hire someone to do it, because things are decaying. That's why we look at the tragedies on the, on the, on the news. It's not free from unstained by sin and not unpolluted. These are the realities of our world. That's why you have to do lawn care all the time because your world's not unfading. It doesn't, uh, your world does wither and does lose its beauty. That's the reality. Creation's groaning for its redemption. God's got something different in heaven than for creation than he does now. 
But look at our bodies. As, and we as believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of His future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised. We were given this hope when we were saved. Right now, you have a back problem. You have a foot problem. You might have been going through cancer, or have colon, colon issues, whatever. That is the reality of the Christian life. You know, the death rate is one per person, right? I think Roy taught me that one-liner. You can't escape that. That's not the reality of heaven. It's undefiled, unfading, imperishable, including your body. It's immortal. It's immortal. What a wonderful picture of a hope in troubling times in terms of the earth and the body that we experience. But what about the nitty-gritties? What do we get to experience in heaven? You can look these up on your own later. Revelation 21 and 22. First, the city of Jerusalem is incredible. It's incredible. The length and the width and the height of the city are 1,500 miles. That's over 2 million square kilometers, which is more than half the USA. That's heaven. But it's 15 by 15 by 15. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like, you know, this way, this way, and this way. It goes up 1,500 miles, the city, not just on this dimension. <laughs> Think about that. This, the city is surrounded by 70, uh, sorry, walls that are 70 meters thick. 70 meters thick. And there's 12 gates and foundations in every wall. Three in the north, south, east, and west. These walls and foundations and gates are not made out of stucco and drywall and two by fours. They're made out of everything we saw in the Garden of Eden in terms of the stones. Jasper, sapphire, emerald, pearl, and topaz, just to name a few. Could you imagine 70 meters thick walls made out of like onyx or, or jasper, something like that? And the city itself is constructed from pure gold. Not concrete and asphalt, pure gold. The environment is amazing too. We see very much what we saw in the Garden of Eden. There's a river of life flowing through the city. The tree of life is there, available to all humanity once again, constantly yielding fruit every month for us to eat. No more going to the grocery store and picking through the fruit trying to find the best one, and the best one's covered in wax anyway, and putting it, just choosing it because that's all there is to choose from. Imagine what Adam and Eve ate in the original creation. That's the kind of fruit that we're going to have. We can't even understand what that's going to be like. Another thing that's hard to comprehend, there's no moon and no sun in glory. The light source will be the glory of God. That's the light in heaven. That shouldn't surprise you. Remember on day one of creation, he said, let there be light. Where was the sun and moon? It wasn't created till day four. Light can exist, believe it or not, without, God, without uh, the sun and the moon. God's glory can be the source of light. That's the light of heaven. In terms of human relationships in your body, it's the place of no mores. No more tears. No more pain. No more sorrow. All physical and emotional pain gone. The body is free from corruption. It's immortal. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places, Jesus says, and I'm going to prepare that place for you. <laughs> Who doesn't want to go there? Who doesn't want to live there? But the now, that's not for now. That's for the, the not yet. That's the future hope. But that's what motivates us and encourages us to get through times of trial. Now, I know it took some time to go through that, but I think it's totally worth doing. So you understand the incredible promises God has in store for us. He's not giving us, like, his second best there. His sort of sloppy seconds. This is God's best in full display. The irony, though, is this. The disciples don't want him to leave. <laughs> he says, I have to go. I, you can't have this dwelling place unless I go prepare it for you. I have to go prepare this for you. They don't want him to go. They want him to stay and their hearts are troubled. That's the irony of the whole thing. He had to go because this would be an impossibility for them to even have without him leaving. At the same time though, this is where our discussion went last week as well. To only focus on what God had externally promised to us is to miss the point of heaven completely. I'll say that again. To only focus on the external blessings that God has to bring us is to miss the point of heaven completely. You see, the focus of heaven is not what we're going to experience, but on who we're going to experience. Jesus makes this amply clear in verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Joe Donjo said it this way, and if you like one-liners like I do, you'll never forget this. The central hope of heaven was, is not real estate, but relationship. The central hope of heaven is not real estate, but relationship. Jesus says, I'm going to come and get you so that you may there be also where I am. It's about Him. Again, hugely important words for disciples who are in trouble and anxious and fear of losing Him. He's like, yeah, I'm going, but it's temporary. I have to go prepare a house for you. But I'm going to bring, come and get you, bring you back, and you're going to be with me eternally. You'll never lose me ever again. You know people's view of heaven is backwards when you hear things like this. Man, I really want to go to heaven. Why? Can't wait to see my grandma. Can't wait to see my dad. Can't wait to see my dog. Can't wait to be free of my back pain. Seeing your grandma, of course it's going to be great to see her. Being free of your back pain, of course it's going to be great to see that, to have that. But that's not what it's about. The primary relationship, the only reason why you get there is because of Jesus Christ. He is the focus of heaven. He is the most important relationship you could ever experience in glory. It's all about Him. Paul understood this. He's in jail, and he's going through hell on earth. He's even been beaten uh, unfairly. He's in jail, he's in chains, and uh, he, wrestling through whether he's going to be released or not, he has faith that he can be released from jail, but he's, he knows the reality that his, his life will come to an end at one point. 
Listen to what he says here. I, eager, I eagerly expect and hope that I will go in no, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he's saying this. Yeah, like, well, actually I'll just keep reading. <laughs> if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in my body. Here's what's cool about this. He's like, if I stick around here, it's going to be really good, because I can live for Jesus here by proclaiming the gospel and fulfilling my, my calling. But ultimately, to die is gain. Why? Because I can be with Him. Now here's the key. Die is gain. What, look what Paul doesn't say. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, because then I will experience 70 meter thick walls. To die as gain, because I will get to eat from the tree of life. I'll get to see onyx gates with great foundations. And I'll get to see my grandmother. None of that. He says, what? To die is gain, to be with Christ. <laughs> to be with Christ. Now why is Christ so important? Why is it all about Him? For us and for Paul and for the disciples. Well, there's two monumental events in this text that He does and participates in to bring us to glory. There's something He did do and there's something he's going to do. So what did he do to bring us to the dwelling places in the Father's house? Go back to verse 2. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and... Oh, let's stop there. Never mind. Prepare is there twice. He's going to prepare a house. Now, when my mom comes to visit, here's what my preparations look like. Me and... Janice scramble to vacuum the carpets in her room. We scramble to get the dirty sheets off the bed, get them in the laundry, use the nicest smelling soap we can to get it nice and fresh. We get the pillows all matching with the same duvet covers. Can't have a mismatching for mom, you know. Um, we do all these incredible preps. Make sure the pictures are hanging crooked with my son or straight up and down on the wall. That's the preparation for when mom comes to visit. How did Jesus prepare a room for us? Not with laundry soap, but by blood. Not by a wooden bed, all nice and fluff, but by a wooden cross. That's how he prepared the room. His death and resurrection. Because this is so fundamental to the Christian faith, Christianity does not exist without the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the, that separates us from every other religion. That's so fundamental, we have to understand exactly what he did to prepare the room. And we're going to deal with it right now. Because this is the message we share with others. Two verses are going to be key for you today. If you hang these two verses in your, in your Bible, you will know how to understand the gospel. So let's deal with the death. Why did Jesus die? Paul says it in one sentence in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. 
Christ died for our sins. This is important why He died. This is part of the preparation. He died for our sins so that we could go to glory. So what is sin? Why does He have to die for sin? Well, it's interesting. Jesus, in this, this um, religious leader, get into a debate in this conversation in Matthew chapter 22. And the guy says, you know, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in God's law? And Jesus says, well, you answer... He answered, uh, you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. When you understand God's law in this way, you can realize why all of us are guilty of sin. Because none of us have loved God perfectly, and none of us have loved their neighbors perfectly. None of us. It's important to understand the breaking the law in terms of love. Here's why. Because we focus on the externals. Well, I know, I don't... I don't smoke, and I don't sleep around, and I don't get drunk, you know, and all these things. I don't steal, I don't lie. Like, these are the, we focus on the big externals. If we understand sin as this, to failure to do a loving act, it totally changes the game chain, the, the definition. Because love, any sin is to be unloving in terms of how you treat God or another person. And not one person could admit that they're not guilty in the category of love. So because we've sinned, God has a problem on His hands because He loves us so much He wants to be in relationship. But that sin has separated us from God relationally. And the, and this, the consequences are severe. In Romans 6.23, He says, The wages of sin are death. The wages of sin is death. Any unloving act towards God or another person is death. That's the penalty. And death in the Bible is best understood in terms of eternal separation from God. So there's no presence with Him. It's absence of God in terms of His blessing and, and relationship. But God in His love has a solution. He wants to be with us in relationship, so He does something to, 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 to repair this. So He sends Jesus to die on the cross and bear the penalty for the sins we've committed. In order, through that, in order that through Jesus' willingness to die in our place, we could be reconciled to God. And how do we receive that gift of love? And that forgiveness, we exercise faith. We believe that He died in our place, that we were to be judged, but God put the judgment on Him. That we aren't good apart from Him. <laughs> that we needed to get into glory by, on His merit and not our own. There's nothing in and of ourselves to initially save ourselves. Because we've all broken God's law. So God has to do something and He sends His Son to die for us. Some of you are more visual than auditory. Let me show you the cost of sin and let me show you how much He loves you. And remember when I show you this picture, that's, this, that was to be us in terms of what should have happened. But this is how much He loves you and this is God's solution for sin. The death was important to bring about the preparation of the room. That's only half the story, church. He also needed to be resurrected. He had to be resurrected. Their key verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 17. 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Falling asleep is a euphemism for death. You're lost. The question is, why are we still in the sins without the resurrection? The wages of sin, remember Romans 6.23, is what? Death. Jesus was sinless. So therefore, death couldn't be his penalty. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, it meant he was a sinner. <laughs> that means if he's a sinner, there's no one to, to, to take care of our sin before the Lord. He'd be dying for his own sins, not for ours. So now there's no substitution. And now there's no way for us to be made right with God. The resurrection is critical. Because it showed that he was sinless and death can have no power over him. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.26 calls death the last enemy. It's the last enemy. It was defeated when Christ raised because he was sinless. So when we put our faith in him, we, we basically grab onto Jesus' coattails as he rises to heaven and we are resurrected with him. You know, think of a skydiver when you're, parachuted, when you're, when you're attached to like a, an instructor, except you're going the other way. You get up there because of Jesus' merit, because he was sinless. And you're banking on his goodness, his righteousness, and his blood to bring you there. The irony is that if Jesus fulfilled the disciples' agenda and stayed with them, please stay, don't go, I'm so troubled, I have so much anxiety over you going. They would have never got to go to glory and experience the Father's house, and neither would you and I. This is why Jesus said to Peter, when, remember the scene? In, um, I think it's in, uh, well, it's in the, one of the Gospels, it's either Luke or Matthew. Jesus says to the, Peter, I am going to die, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be raised and resurrected. And Peter says, never on my watch, Jesus, that's never happening to you. And he says, what? Get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that to him? Because if he, did, if he followed Peter's plan and clung to him, Peter would have never experienced the resurrection, never experienced forgiveness of sin, and would have not have gone to the Father's house where there were many dwellings. For Peter to think that way about keeping Jesus on earth was to be, think satanically. That would ultimately fulfill Satan's plan, not God's agenda. So that's the first event. How does he prepare the room for you? He dies for you, and he resurrects for you. And those are the principles of Christianity. That's the gospel. All you need is those two key verses. 1 Corinthians 15.3 and... Uh, 1517 and you'll understand the truth but there's a second event that brings us to glory we pick this up in verse 3 if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself what event is he talking about there the second coming of Christ the first coming was in 2,000 years ago he's coming back again and any and um, well, every, every church thinks it's in their generation, so I'll, I won't leave, I'll just leave that out. But uh, he's coming again. <clears throat> Let me just show you what happens at this coming again. We receive our resurrected bodies, and we get to reign with him in his kingdom. Look at Matthew 24, the event. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. That's a big picture of it. I'll give you the minor details in 1 Thessalonians 4. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will be Lord with the Lord forever. Notice the order there. When the Lord appears in the sky in the trumpet blasts, and the, and the people that don't know him are mourning when he's coming. Abraham, Moses, your grandmother, people like that rise first to meet the Lord and have received their physical body at that moment. They'll be united with their soul. Those of us who are alive, if we're still here when it happens, we will arise second and experience the resurrection physically as well. And that it'll be united with, well, our soul and spirit will be one. But we were, at that point, receive the full resurrection. Again, here we have the now but not yet reality. Now, our world, we have a physical body and a soul, but it's decaying, it's falling apart, it's experiencing sin, all these things. There's not the presence of Jesus Christ in his physical form here for us. But in glory, when he comes back, we'll get our glorified body. We will be restored and get the resurrection. It's the body of no more. No more sin, no more tears, no more suffering, no more crying, all these things. And we'll have full intimacy with the Lord. Full presence with Jesus Christ. Thomas and the boys, they don't fully understand everything Jesus is talking about. And I don't blame them. It's very difficult to understand. But Jesus here makes one more profound statement that has shaped the course of history. And it's probably one of, the most, one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Pick this up in verse 4. And you know the way I'm going, says Jesus. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way because he's the only path between a sinful man and a holy God. He's the only person that can reconcile us to the Lord. There's only one way to God. Number two, he's the truth. Only in his words, in his teaching, in the way to live out this life, can eternal life be found. Following his understanding of how life works and the truth to the pathways to God, is only found in Him. And He's the life. He's the creator of it. He's the source and giver of it. So the disciples were going to lose Him. They're going to lose Him. He gave them words of comfort. The Father has a place for you. I have to leave and go prepare it for you. Number two, I'm coming back to get you. But there's one more promise. 
Even though the Lord was leaving, He was going to give them someone to help them to replace them in their life. That was the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16 in John chapter 14. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. He'll be in you. Look at verse 25, or 26, I should say. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Another word of comfort. I know you're anxious about this, but just so you know, you're not going to be alone. I'm sending another helper. Interestingly, the word helper, some of your translations might have this, the word is comforter. I'm sending you a comforter to be with you. You don't have me now. The now, but the now, here's a now reality for a believer. You don't have me physically. There's not the intimacy of just like a discipleship where you can just talk to Jesus face to face. But I'm not leaving you alone yet either. I'm going to give you a deposit, like a, a guarantee, uh, my presence. He's going to come in the form of the Holy Spirit, and He will be in you. And He will guide you, and He will teach you. And those of us who know the Lord know exactly what we mean, He means by this. And that's another whole sermon. How does the Holy Spirit work in a believer's life? That's another sermon. That's not for today. But just know that the Lord did not leave us empty. He gave us His presence in the Spirit. But again, that's now, but that's not the future hope in terms of the fullness. In the fullness is the glory when Jesus will come back and will be in His full presence and share in that intimacy. So what can we learn from today's message in terms of the hope of heaven, the realities now of a Christian versus the future, and what to expect? Number one, as believers, the joy of being in the presence of Jesus Christ and sharing in the intimacy of that relationship is our hope for heaven. Those of you who know my secret how to do lessons, you notice the first two words there. <laughs> as believers, the joy of being in the presence of Christ and sharing in the intimacy of that relationship is our hope for heaven. It's not the onyx gate, the sapphire foundation, your grandmother. It's the presence of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of heaven. That's the Christian's perspective and understanding what God, how God wants us to think about Him. It's about relationship, not real estate. One more thought about this. Why does it have to be about Him? Look around you in this church. In your life, of the people in this church alone, has anyone in here loved you perfectly? Have we not all disappointed each other in some kind of way at some time? Hurt you, hurt each other, just even if it's just minor, just, just something we said, or the, our failure to even like acknowledge something? We've, we've all hurt each other to some degree, or failed each other to some degree, or disappointed each other to some degree. <coughs> Who hasn't 
hurt, disappointed, or failed us. The Lord is absolutely flawless and perfect in the way He loves you. Heaven is being around someone who loves you perfectly. That's why it's about Him. Lesson two. While Jesus is our hope for heaven, don't forget about what God has prepared for us. There's some incredible things for us to enjoy and experience. Yeah, it's all about Jesus, but man, He's giving us a tree of life. He's giving us a beautiful city. We get to experience heaven with His light being the glory. Pretty amazing things. We're not getting, we're not getting second, God's second best here. He could. He could give us stucco and drywall places to, to, to live in. He doesn't. He gives us an incredible city. Incredible earth to live on. It's just an expression of His love. We, we want our kids to have nice things and to experience great things in this world. What well, God does too. But that's for them. It's not for the same degree as now. Right now creation groans wanting to be redeemed. But that's not the creation we'll have in heaven. Number three. Without the death, resurrection, and second coming of Christ, the hope of heaven would be an absolute impossibility. <laughs> I prepare a room for you, not you prepare a room for yourself. I prepare a room for you. I, me, you have nothing to do with that room prep. You didn't die for your own sin. You didn't give it been resurrected. You're not coming back to get yourself to bring you to glory. Jesus does all of these things. The only way to Him is through believing in Him and what He did for you. A, B, C, D. You acknowledge you're a sinner. B. You believe Christ did something about it on the cross at Calvary. He died for you in love. C. You confess your sins. Sin, same story is not enough, church. You own what you did before God and say, Lord, I am broken before you. I can't believe how much you love me by dying for me. You confess that sin. You lay it out on the table before him. Indeed, you dedicate your life to him. You dedicate as an act of love and service to him. There's two deaths at Calvary. Him for you and you for him. Four. Jesus and the apostles taught that the remembering these eternal truths were key to overcoming anxiety, fear, and trials in this world. Jesus said, You're troubled? Let me remind you of what I have in store for you. Peter, in 1 Peter, you Christians are troubled? Let me remind you of what I have in store for you. These were key. Jesus and Peter think it's important for us to know what God has prepared in eternity to help us through now. We better listen. And hopefully today you understand exactly what that was by the way we spoke about Scripture today. Our tendency in trials is to go into despair and woe is me. That's the tendency. It's mine too. What does he say? Don't focus on that. Focus on what's in store for you in the future. That's how you overcome. And finally, the now but not get realities of salvation and the hope of heaven is my fifth lesson. The now but not yet realities. Now, in creation, there's groaning. Then, there'll be this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The body. Now, groaning. Then, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, the presence of Christ is the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
Then will be Jesus in his full presence, the physical body present. As clearly as I can see, like Stuart or Micah or Gigi, I, I, it's going to be that close. And the communication and intimacy will be 100% there. Right now, like we, we have a lot of questions around how the Holy Spirit leads. And is he talking to me? There's no confusion. You'll know Jesus Christ is having a conversation with you right there. There will be no miscommunication on that. The fullness of his presence is something for glory. But not now. Not now. So, again, I thought it was important to take a break from 1 Timothy to clear up and into some of the things we talked about last week and to encourage you as well about some of the cool things that God has in store.